Well, uh, if you happen to be a guest of ours or you just haven't been here for the past couple of weeks, uh, we are in the next to last week of a series that we've been calling That Church. And we've been talking about that church that we want to be like, and we've been talking about that church uh, that we don't want to be like. And, and if you haven't been here, uh, we started things off by talking about the church of Antioch, and we said, you know what, we want to be like that church here at the Creek Church, because the church in Antioch, they were always moving in the direction of people who were far from God, and not only moving in the direction of people far from God, but they moved in the direction of people that they had been taught all of their lives to walk in the other direction from. And so they were moving in the direction of people far from God, even people who were drastically different from how they were. And so we said, hey, here at the Creek Church, we want to be like that church. And then we talked about two weeks ago, the church in Corinth. And this was a church, they were immature and incompatible. They couldn't get along with each other. And because they couldn't get along with each other on the inside, it compromised their influence with outsiders on the outside. And we said, you know what? We don't want to be that church. We don't want to be that church that can't get along with each other to the point that people on the outside look in and say, you know what, we don't, we don't want any part of that. And so we said, when it comes to the church in Corinth and their immaturity and incompatibility, uh, we don't want to be that church. And then last week we talked about uh, the church in Thessalonica and they were known for faith and they were known for their love and they were known for their hope. And they became an example uh, for other Christians. Uh, and they became an example of what Jesus followers are supposed to look like and how Jesus followers are supposed to handle difficult times and how they're supposed to handle being a Christian when it's not convenient being a Christian. And so last week we said, you know what? We want to be like that church. Now, today I want us to look at another church, the fourth church, uh, another one of those churches that we are introduced to in the book of Acts. And in this particular church was located in one of the largest and most influential cities in all of the Roman Empire in the first century. And it was a city uh, by the name of Ephesus. And perhaps if you've been in church or maybe if you love history, you've heard of the city of Ephesus before. Ephesus is a, is a city with a storied past. And like I said, if you love history, then you have to love Ephesus because it has such an incredible history to it. Mark Antony, uh, he came to the city of Ephesus with his uh, femme fatale, uh, Cleopatra. He, he brought her there shortly before his big showdown in the Battle of Actium uh, with Octavian. And so he comes to Ephesus, it was, you know, his multiple times of being there because he loved that city. But he came there shortly before he fought Octavian. He's going to fight Octavian for control of the Roman Empire. He's going to lose. Uh, Octavian's going to become the first emperor of the Roman Empire. Uh, you may know him by Caesar Augustus. But when Octavian became Caesar, uh, known as Caesar Augustus, he made Ephesus the capital of Asia for the Roman Empire. And he also made Ephesus the home of the governor. And so uh, Ephesus was a city of extraordinary influence, extraordinary wealth. And the people who were from Ephesus, known as the Ephesians, the Ephesians were a people who were extraordinarily proud to be from Ephesus. If you met someone from Ephesus, they would absolutely let you know they were from Ephesus. If they were from Ephesus, they were proud of it. And the thing that they were most proud of in Ephesus was this right here. It was the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was 425 feet long, which means here in London in this building, it's another 120 feet longer than this building. Uh, for those of you in Somerset, it's about 60 feet longer than the Center for Rural Development. And for those of you in Williamsburg, it's about the size of the mall that you're meeting in this morning. So we're talking about something really big, 425 feet long, 225 feet wide. Uh, there was a 127 marble columns all around uh, the perimeter of the temple, each of those 60 feet tall. 
Uh, not only was it a temple, but it was a bank. It was one of the most prestigious, most powerful, uh, wealthiest banks in the first century. So it was a temple, it was a bank, it was fully staffed uh, with priests and prostitutes, dancers, musicians, and bankers, pretty much everything you needed to have a great worship service in the first century uh, there in Ephesus. I mean, if you, if you didn't have it, it wasn't because it wasn't there because all of these people, they presided over the temple and over the bank. And so each one of them uh, led sacrifices and not only led sacrifices to the goddess, but also participated in orgies. And so, you know, I assume that they didn't have a problem getting people to church back in those days because it was pretty lively. It was pretty crazy. I mean, even if you didn't want to participate, you just wanted to come see what was going to happen next. And so that, that was kind of the center of the city. That, that's kind of how it, how it rolled in Ephesus. It was one of the wealthiest most influential, uh, most prosperous cities in all of the empire. Uh, there were three major trade routes which intersected in Ephesus. It was the home of one of the great ports of the ancient world. As a matter of fact, out of the port of Ephesus, there was a 70 feet wide highway that ran from the port all the way through the city. And on each side of the street, it was aligned with marble. So this was just not a wealthy town. This was an opulent town. That's the reason it was known as the Supreme Metropolis of Asia. Uh, a Roman author in the first century called it the light of Asia. Uh, a contemporary writer referred to it as the Vanity Fair uh, of our day. It was a city that established trends for other cities. It influenced the economy. It included, you know, influencing their value systems in other places, the politics of other places, and, and really the culture at large within the empire. It was all influenced right there in Ephesus. So its importance its importance can't be overstated, and that's why I tell you all that. This was an important city, one of the most important cities in the first century. Matter of fact, it was second only in size and influence to the eternal city itself, Rome. So if you know anything about the New Testament, if you know anything about the people in the New Testament, it should not surprise any of us who do that the type A, entrepreneurial, ambitious Apostle Paul had his eyes set on the city of Ephesus. When Paul thought of some of the places where he absolutely wanted to start a church and plant a church, Ephesus had to be at the top of the list because Ephesus was right up there with Rome. It was right up there with Alexandria. It was right up there with Antioch and Syria as the four most influential cities in all of the empire. So Paul had his eyes set on Ephesus because Paul took very seriously the last words of Jesus. When Jesus said, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples. And so Paul, he took that seriously and he behaved as if he were the only one who took those words seriously. So at the end of about AD 52, he was in Corinth. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And after staying there for 18 months, he left Corinth and an interesting detail that we find in Acts chapter 18. He then got a haircut. And after he got a haircut, he took two of his friends, Priscilla and Aquila, and he went to Ephesus. And so when he shows up at Ephesus, he only stays there for a very short time. And he leaves Priscilla and Aquila, this married couple that he's become really close friends with, he leaves them there to carry on the work. And so this is what the book of Acts, Luke, that records the early history of the church, this is what he says about Paul when he left. He says, but as Paul was leaving, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. And then he set sail from Ephesus. So... He left Priscilla and Aquila. He headed back to Judea through the port of Caesarea. He went down to Jerusalem, checked on the church there real quickly, went back up to Antioch, the church we talked about in the first week. He gave them a report of how God was starting churches all around the rim of the Mediterranean throughout the Roman Empire. And so he brought them up to speed on everything that's been happening. And then he left Antioch and he went back to Ephesus. And when he comes back to Ephesus, he's gonna stay there for three years. It's gonna be the longest place that Paul stays in all of his ministry. He's gonna stay there 
there for three years. And when he shows up, Ephesus is at the height of its glory days. It's at the height of its prosperity, at the height of its power, at the height of its influence. And so when Paul comes back to town in Acts chapter 19, and just FYI, you should go home, carve out some time, and read all of Acts chapter 19 because it's a fascinating chapter with lots of interesting details that I don't have time to tell you about today. But you should make some time and read it because it'll be worth your time. But in Acts chapter 19, here's what Luke says about when, when Paul came back to town. It says, Paul entered the synagogue because that's, that's what he liked to do. Every time he would go into a place, he would go to where the Jews met because he had the most in common with Jews because he was a Jewish person himself. The Jewish people knew the Old Testament. Paul was a scholar in the Old Testament. So he went to the synagogue and he spoke boldly. Everybody say boldly. This is a big deal. I mean, if you've been in, you know, the Christian church for very long, you've been, you've been in church circles for very long, you know, you, you've heard people talk about the importance of Christians to be bold. And, and Paul was bold. But here's the thing. Uh, many of us grew up in a church culture where bold meant being offensive. And bold meant you just said hurtful things. And you said some things that may have been true, but you said them in such hurtful ways, nobody wanted to listen to the truth that you were being so bold about. Paul was bold. That means he, he said some things that were not easy to say. He said some things that no one else was really willing to say. It says he spoke boldly, but here's the thing. He spoke boldly there for three months. He went there every Sabbath day for three months, arguing persuasively. Everybody say persuasively. Persuasively. He not only spoke boldly, but he was persuasive. He was winsome. He was calculated. He knew what he wanted to say, and he thought about the best way to say it. He thought about the best way to say something in a way that was not necessarily offensive. Something he didn't want to unnecessarily offend anybody. So he thought about what he needed to say and what had to be said. And so he spoke it boldly, but he was also persuasive. He leveraged every tool of communication that he could in order to convince the Jewish population that Jesus was the Messiah and that the Old Testament, the prophets, and the law of Moses predicted one day that a Savior would come and that Jesus was that Savior. So he used the Old Testament to present to them what we know as the New Testament, Jesus. And so this is how Paul did ministry, boldly and persuasively. If the 21st century church if the Creek Church, if churches all over this nation could take one cue at this season of time that we find ourselves in this nation, if we could take one cue from Paul, it should be this right here, that we learn how to speak boldly and we learn how to speak persuasively, that we say what needs to be said, but we think about the best way to say it. We think about how to be winsome about it. We think about how to be calculated about it. We learn how to communicate what needs to be communicated the best way it can be communicated in order to cause people to lean in and not get unnecessarily offended and walk away. This is what the church needs to learn to do in the 21st century. Parents need to learn how to communicate about faith to their children, both boldly and persuasively. The church in every community needs to learn how to speak the truth boldly and persuasively. And so that's how Paul did ministry. And then it says, but some of them there at the synagogue became obstinate and they refused. And that's an interesting thing. They refused to believe and publicly malign the way. Now the way is what Christians were referred to in the first century, the way. It says that some refused to believe. Now, and here's, here's what happened. There were a group of Jewish people in the synagogue that when they heard Paul teach and when they heard Paul preach, they decided, they gave a, a strategic calculation that the cost of believing and the cost of following Jesus was going to be too great for them. What they were gonna to have to walk away from, 
what they needed to walk away from, perhaps what the scriptures would call them to walk away from, would seem too great a price to pay for them to follow Jesus. So it says, and they refused. It's not that they couldn't believe, but it's that they wouldn't believe. And there is a big difference. And maybe you're here or maybe you know someone and they've been saying, you know what? I, I, just, I just can't believe it. I just can't believe it. Some of that stuff, I just can't believe. Maybe if all the levels of the onion, all the layers of the onion were peeled back, maybe if everybody got honest about it or many people got honest about it, they would just have to confess in the end, I just don't want to believe. Because if I believe, if I decide to follow, the price is just too high a price that I don't want to pay. And so there were some there that just said, you know what, I'm not, we're not going to believe. And so it says that Paul left them and he took the disciples with him and they had discussions daily now in the lecture hall of Tyrannus where philosophy was taught. So he, he went to an entirely different venue, probably an entirely different audience. And there, boldly and persuasively, he began to talk about Jesus. And it says that this went on for two years. This is how Paul did ministry for two years. Now think about this synagogue and then on to the lecture halls. This was Paul for two years doing the hard work of trying to start a church there. It says, so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, they heard the word of the Lord. So things are happening in Ephesus. The church is getting started. Things are blowing and going. The church is exploding. Everybody is either talking about Jesus or hearing about Jesus. I mean, this was a big deal. The influence of this city cannot be understated. A church has started in the second greatest city in all the empire. And now people throughout all of that area are either talking about Jesus or hearing about Jesus. Now, like I said, Acts chapter 19 is really interesting and it's really entertaining because it records some details that just causes us when we read it to say, wow, what? You know, we read about how Paul, how his shadow would heal people. I mean, think about that. Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, if your shadow could heal some people, wouldn't that just be the greatest gig ever? I, I mean, Paul, Paul, he was healing people in the, in the strangest of ways. He, he would pull out a handkerchief and they would give somebody the handkerchief of Paul and all of a sudden they would get healed. Now, Oftentimes we read things like that and, and we think in our 21st century modern sensibilities, we think, why doesn't God do things like that today? Why do things like that not seemingly happen very much or at all today? And I just want to go on a record to say, I don't want to be the person. I don't want to be the, the guy. I don't want to be the pastor. I, I don't want to be the Bible student who, who draws a box and says, okay, th this is the box of who God is and what God can do and how God is supposed to do all the things that God, you know, can do. I don't want to be the person who locks God in a box of what he can do or can't do or how he's supposed to do it. I, I, I believe that God can do whatever God wants to do, however God wants to do it. If God wants to use a shadow, I believe God can use a shadow. If God wants to use a handkerchief, I, I believe that God can use a handkerchief. But here's the thing we need to understand. It, just so that we can understand the context of what's happening. Throughout the book of Acts, every time we find a major miracle happening, it is for the influence that the church needs for the sake of those on the outside. It's the fact that there were miraculous things happening inside the church so that those outside the church would begin to lean in and want to listen. Uh, in the 20 and 21st century, so much of miracles and the talk of miracles inside the church is all kind of about us. But in the first century, the miraculous acts of God were really motivated and inspired concerning those on the outside of the church so that those far from God would stop for a moment, pause, and listen. 
And so Paul's, he's doing all of these miracles. There's a lot of demon activity in, 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 the, in the city of Ephesus and in Acts chapter 19. And Paul, you know, he rebukes demons and there's all kinds of that. And there's some interesting stories that you should go home and read about. And, and all of this is going on to the point that Luke says that fear fell upon the entire city. There's miracles being performed. There's supernatural. There's spiritual warfare. There's all of this stuff going on. And it's so prevalent. It's so visible that the whole city comes under a fear. And everybody stops and everybody listens. And everybody's listening so much that when Paul stands up to preach, there are just thousands of people flocking to faith and joining the church. Matter of fact, many of them practice the black arts. Many of them practice sorcery in the first century uh, because sorcery was so tied to paganism. And so this is what Luke says happened. It says, a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls or their books together and burned them publicly. Now, let me ask you a question. For some of you who grew up in church and grew up in you know, a youth group or youth ministry, how many, how many of you ever participated in a CD burning? Or maybe a, a record burning? Or a book, you know, some of you are so blessed you don't even know it. <laughs> I can remember going to a CD burning one night in my youth group and I'm telling you, I lost so many incredible Jimmy Buffett CDs, Pink Floyd, <laughs> The Grateful Dead. You know, and it's like, you know, we brought all that stuff that made us sin and we burn it. I'm telling you, I mean, we really did a ding on the uh, environment that night. I mean, there was, there was a lot of smoke. But the funny thing was we still walked away sinners. It didn't help. Didn't help at all. We just, we just, we just bought new things, found new things, you know. And, and so this is what happened, though. They realized, they realized that their previous life was incompatible with their new life. They understood that the way that they had been living was now not compatible with the way that Jesus is inviting them to live their life. And so they publicly disavow their former life. And that's what happens here. And it says that in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and it grew in power. They actually brought so many books. It actually totaled in a modern day economy about $5 million. And so this was dramatic and this was visible and this was public. And so the church is growing large, it's growing influential. And it grows so influential, this is so funny. It begins to impact the attendance at the temple of Artemis. It begins to impact the economy in Ephesus. So much of the economy, remember the temple was not only a temple, but it was a bank. And all around the temple, there were all kinds of merchants and all kinds of businesses that sold little silver you know, figurines or silver idols of the goddess. Or, or silver, silver replicas of the temple so that they could take it back wherever in the world they were going or take it back to their house. And all of a sudden, there was the head of a trade union. His name was Demetrius. He began to look at the profit and loss sheets and, and he pulled it up and he said, you know what? Our numbers are down. And, and then he calls the priest at the temple and says, hey, how are your numbers? And they're like, our numbers are down. He's like, well, so are our sales. We're not selling as many, you know, little gods of, you know, little figurines of Artemis as what we used to. And so they did some investigating and Demetrius called together his union and he spoke to all of the other guys and all the other ladies and all the other families that they were all silversmiths and they had created these little silver figurines of, of the goddess and of the temple that they sold to people. And that's how they made their living. And it was part of a thriving economy in Ephesus. And they said, you've probably noticed that your sales are down. And if you work at the temple, you've probably noticed that your attendance is down. They said, let me tell you what's to blame. It's a guy by the name of Paul. Paul's been preaching and Paul's been talking to our people, telling them that God's made with hands are not God's at all. And people are believing him and people are becoming followers of this Jesus that he talks about. 
And so he creates a riot. He creates a mob. And basically they fill up the amphitheater there in Ephesus. And you can Google what the, uh, that, that particular amphitheater looked like because the remnants are still there. And it was on the side of a mountain just outside of Ephesus. About 25,000 people could fit in that theater. And so about 20, 25,000 people were there at this mob, this riot. And everybody was getting all worked up about how the Christians there were adversely affecting the temple and the economy that's influenced by the temple. And so the mob eventually settles down, and when it settles down, Paul decides, you know, it's time for him to leave Ephesus. And before he leaves Ephesus, he knows that, you know, there's a group of people that he needs to meet with. And so he met with the elders, the leadership of the local church, because that's, that's what Paul would do. He would raise up leaders, and then he would hand off leadership, and he would go off to the next place. And so he met with them in this really emotionally charged piece of narrative where he gets together these Ephesian elders, and he looks at them, and he says, guys, he says, I want you to know. You know how I've preached. You know what I've taught. You know how I've taught day and night. I've taught with tears. I've taught from house to house. You know that I've really not considered my life that important. The only thing that I wanted to do, I wanted to finish my race. And I wanted to finish well. I wanted to finish the assignment that God gave me here. And I think that God is bringing me to the end of my assignment here. And I'm getting ready to leave. But I'm going to leave you in charge. And right now, perhaps, is going to be the last time that we're ever going to see each other. So here, I need to tell you. I want you to keep watch or keep guard over the flock of God. I want you to shepherd the sheep that Jesus has bought with his very own blood. I want you to fight against the wolves because there's going to be wolves that try to get in. And there's going to be wolves that rise up even in your own midst that try to destroy the people that Jesus has died for. So I want you to be on guard. And so Paul leaves. And so that was kind of the end of Paul's public ministry there in Ephesus. But, but here's the thing. Ephesus was never without strong leadership. I mean, they had the dream team as, as it related to pastors. In Ephesus, basically, here, here's what their leadership looked like for the next few decades. There was Paul. Of course, Paul helped start it. There was Priscilla and Aquila. There was Apollos, who was this great communicator. There was Timothy that Paul's going to place in charge. There's Onesiphorus and Tychicus, who were very close companions of the Apostle Paul. And then eventually, there's going to be the Apostle John, because John is going to move to Ephesus somewhere around AD 70 when the Romans invade, and he's going to take Mary, the mother of Jesus, with him. And that's where she's going to die. And that's where John is eventually going to die. It's in Ephesus that John is going to write the books of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. That's where he's going to write those books from, is right there in Ephesus. So here's the thing you need to know. This church couldn't have had a better start. This church couldn't have had a stronger start. This church couldn't have had better leadership. This church couldn't have had more influence. Now think about this. Think about how much influence this church had. The book of Ephesians, the book of 1st and 2nd Timothy, the book of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the final book of the New Testament, the Revelation, are all books either written to the Ephesians or about the Ephesians. This is a church that has extraordinary influence and extraordinary prominence in the New Testament. I mean, their influence may be not able to be compared to anybody else that we find in the New Testament. So 30 years, fast forward 30 years later, after Paul has left, he left Priscilla and Aquila, Apollos, he placed Timothy as the pastor there. Timothy, it's believed that he was martyred in Ephesus because he stood against a mob of people who worshiped the goddess Artemis and they beat him to death with clubs. Then there was Onesiphorus and there was Tychicus and like I said, there was John. But over these decades, 30 some years after Paul, something subtle was happening in the church. 
It was subtle, but it was significant. Something was shifting. Something was changing. The people were changing. But they couldn't see it about themselves and they couldn't see it in each other. No one knew that things were changing. No one knew that things were shifting beneath their feet. And to me, I find things like that horrifying. I find things like that absolutely terrifying. That I could be changing and not know it. That things could be shifting towards the worst and I not know it. That you not know it. That we not know it. That we not be able to see it. They thought they were winning, but we're going to find out they were actually losing. How horrible would it be to think that you're winning? To think that you're doing the good thing, the best thing, the right thing, only to find it to be exposed that that wasn't true at all. Towards the end of the century, around 90 or so A.D., the Apostle John, he's been arrested for his faith. He's on the island. It's called Patmos. He's serving out a sentence. He's been arrested because of the decree by the Roman emperor himself. And while he's on the island of Patmos, he's going to write what's called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, the book of Revelation people love to talk about. But the book of Revelation is addressed to seven churches. And the first church that the book of the Revelation is addressed to is the church in Ephesus. And the other six churches are churches that were started by the church in Ephesus. So the entire book of the Revelation, this entire book that John is going to write, this vision, this, this new revelation that he gets of Jesus to deliver to these seven churches and ultimately to the world, right in the center of all of that is Ephesus. And so this is what John writes on behalf of Jesus. He says, to the angel or to the leader or to the pastor of the church in Ephesus, write these words. And he uses some figurative language. He says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. These, these, are, these are the ones, the seven stars are the leaders of these churches. The elders of these churches. The leadership of these churches. And walks among the seven golden lampstands. And the golden lampstands are figurative of those churches. He, he says, I've got a message for you. From the one who holds the leaders in his hand. And he walks among these churches. I've got a message from the one who knows the church inside and out. I've got a message from the one who has authority over the church. And because he has authority over the church and because he knows everything about his church, there is accountability for everyone in the church to the one who is over the church. And so he, he's writing this figurative language to remind them, hey, you are under authority and you are in accountability with the Lord Jesus himself. It is his church, not our church. It's his church. We are his people. And we are in accountability with him because he knows all, sees all, and hears all. And so he reminds all of us, just in a real passive way, that we're all under authority. And we're all in accountability. And that's a good place to be. Beware of any time in your life or my life when we seek to be outside of under authority and when we seek not to be in accountability. Pay attention to when you wanna be a Lone Ranger. Pay attention to when you don't wanna be under anybody else's authority. Pay attention when you don't want accountability in your life. Pay attention to that. And John, he reminds them, as the church, we're under Christ's authority and we're in accountability because he knows all, sees all, and hears all. And this is what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. He says, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. I know it all. I know, I know what you're doing. I see it. And that's either an encouraging thought or a horrifying thought, depending on how we're living. He says, I know, I, I know, I'm, I'm intimately involved. I'm intimately aware of every detail of your life. Now think about this. 
We hear the, the term godly in the New Testament. I didn't, mean to, didn't plan to say this. This is just free. So, hey, congratulations. You're getting what nobody else got today. Whenever you hear the word godly in the New Testament, here's what it means. It means to practice the presence of God. Have you ever noticed how you're different, how your family's different when you have company over? Because someone else is present. You adjust your normal routine, your normal tone, your normal words, your normal habits, your normal life because somebody else is around. Godly means that we're so aware that God is always there that we then begin to respond to the fact that God's there and we begin to live our lives different because of it. He says, I know, I'm there, I'm listening, I'm watching, I'm hearing. And if you think about that and you believe that, that will begin to change the way you live your life. He says, I know your deeds, I know your hard work, I know your perseverance. He says, you folks are giving maximum effort. You're working hard as you have since the day Paul started this church. Your work ethic is incredible. You must have took Jesus' words to heart when Jesus said, work while it's day because night's coming when nobody's gonna be able to work. You're working while you've got work to do. You're giving while you've got something to give. I mean, you're using your life. You're burning the candle at both ends. You're working hard. You're persevering. You, you took Paul's words seriously when Paul said, hey, always abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is what? Not in vain. You really believe that what you do for Jesus isn't empty. You really believe that what you do for Jesus is not without accomplishment. You believe that it's accomplishing the purpose for which God intends for it to accomplish. He says, so you guys are busy. You ladies are busy. You're, you're engaged. He says, that's what you're doing. And so that's pretty good. It's like, okay, we, <laughs> we want to be like that church. He goes on, he says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. And, and what he means by that is you're not charmed. You're not entertained by, you're not amused by the sin of others, by your own sin, by the sin of culture, by the sin of someone you're close to. You're not, you're not entertained by it. You're not amused by it. You're not charmed by it. You realize that sin breaks the heart of God. So your hearts, they're broken for the sins of other people. You, you can't tolerate evil. You understand that sin, it steals, it kills, it destroys. You understand that God loves people and sin kills and destroys and robs people of what God wants them to have. He says, so you can't handle sin. You don't like sin. You try to stand against sin. You can't tolerate it. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty big deal. To which I think we would say, we want to be like that church. He says, you've tested. You've tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not. You found them to be false. He says, listen, you don't think theology is a bad word. You, you don't think being a Bible student is a corny, cheesy thing that's just left for the upper crust of Christianity. No, he says, you, you know the truth. You know the scriptures. You are good at theology and you're able to see what is not true and what is false. You're able to expose the wrong philosophies and the wrong ideas and the wrong premises of the culture where you live. He says, wow, this is incredible. This is great. And we're like, yeah, we want to be like that church. We want to be like that church. He says, you have persevered. You've gone through those rides with Demetrius. You've gone through persecution. One of your pastors, Timothy, was martyred in a parade to the goddess Artemis. I mean, you've gone through some difficult things, but you've persevered. You've endured hardship for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. You've not thrown in the towel. You've not given up when other people would have given up. You endured, you stayed in. And if the letter ended there, if Jesus' words ended there, we would absolutely say without reservation, we want to be like that church. But Jesus' words 
didn't end there. This is what Jesus goes on to say to this storied church of Ephesus with this incredible leadership, with this incredible history, this incredible influence, this incredible start. He says, yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Now think about this, 40 years before this, 40 years before this, Paul picked up his pen. He was in prison in Rome, somewhere between 60 and 62 AD. He picks up his pen and he writes a letter to the church in Ephesus. We call it the book of Ephesians. We actually have it in our New Testament. He writes to them about a whole bunch of different things. But in chapter one, somewhere around verses 15 and 16, he celebrates them. He commends them for having a love for God and a love for people that's famous. 40 years before, the apostle Paul puts his hands together. He puts it on paper. He says, you are famous for how you love. At the end of that letter, in chapter 6, he pronounces a blessing over the church if they can hold on to an undying love for God. But in 40 years, perhaps as one generation handed faith off to the next generation, something changed, something shifted. Things were not like they used to be. People didn't feel like they used to. People didn't look at things like they used to. Something subtle had happened, but something significant had happened beneath their feet and they didn't even realize it. And here's the thing, all that was right with this church was not enough to ignore the wrong that was wrong with this church. Even though they were getting a bunch of things right, all the things that were right with this church were not enough to ignore the wrong that was wrong with this church. And so, you know, scholars and Bible, you know, People who study the Bible all the time and write books about it, you know, they debate, you know, is he talking about a love for God or a love for people? Is he talking about a love for God or a love for people? And I think the answer is really quite simple. He's talking about both because you, you can't have one without the other and you can't leave one behind without the other. Jesus taught that, you know, you prove your love for God by how you love people. Paul said that by loving your neighbor, that's the fulfillment of the law. John, who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John said the reason that you know you've passed from death unto life is because you love other people. The reason that you know you know God is because you love others. How can you love a God that you haven't seen if you can't love people that you can see? So th this church had been talked to extensively about love. But yet when Jesus writes to them, he says, you know what? You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Your love wasn't taken away. No. Your love wasn't stolen away. You gave it away. You, you, you forsook the love that you had at first. You ignored the teaching of the New Testament, which says this, basically, that we are never closer to Jesus than when we love Jesus and love like Jesus. That, that's kind of the, the epitome of Christianity and spirituality in the New Testament. That we are close to Jesus. We are most intimate with Jesus. We are closest to the heart of God when we love Jesus and love like Jesus. But they had shifted. It was small, it was slight, but it was so significant. Things weren't like they used to be. Things they used to think were extraordinary you know, just became ordinary. Their, their, their hot love for God and for people just became cold. And so, you know, I, I read this and I think, you know, God, how did this happen? How does this happen in my life? How does this happen in, in our life? How, how could this happen in the life of our church? You know, what happened? And here's what I think happened. They grew passionate about important things, about important things, while growing less passionate about the most important thing. 
And when this happens, it's serious. When this happens, you'll, you'll discover, as I've discovered, that compassion begins to turn to cynicism. The things you were compassionate about and the people you gave compassion to, now you're just a cynic. You believe the worst about everybody. You believe the worst about everything. And believing the worst about everything and everybody, it really cuts off the flow of compassion. Your trust, your trust in God, it's turned to bitterness because God let you down. God didn't answer a prayer. God let you go through some things that you just, you just can't believe that God would let you go through. Your engagement, your involvement became indifference. You, you just didn't really care anymore. The burdens that you used to carry for people who were far from God, the burden you used to carry to want to make a difference, it's just, it's just kind of apathy now. And here, here's what I've discovered that, in fact, if we could just, just get really, really honest. Here's, here's what I've discovered. It's when we turn after and turn towards good things at the expense of the best thing. That's how this happens. This is how we forsake the love that we had at first. Jesus said, you loved me in a way that you no longer love me. You felt about me 40 years ago in a way that you don't feel about me today. You felt about me 10 years ago, five years ago, six months ago, in a way that you don't anymore. You loved me in a greater way. You loved me in a more passionate way, in a more fulfilling way, in a more enthusiastic way than what you do today. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. And we hear those words and I say to myself, I don't want to be that church. I don't want us to be, I don't want to be that Christian. I don't want us to be that people. I don't want us to be a people who chase after good things at the expense of the best thing. I don't want to go and try to lay hold of important things and let go of the most important thing. So what do we do about it? And this is what Jesus said. This is what you're supposed to do. Consider or remember. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Because if not, listen to what Jesus says. If you do not repent, if you don't change your mind, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. He says, so, if there was a time that you loved me more, if there was a time when I excited you more, when there was a time when you were more enthused about being a part of the church and about being on mission, if there was a time when you were all in, if there was a time when you were generous and you invited and you shared your faith and you spent time in prayer and you read the scriptures, if there was a time when you enjoyed worship in a way that you no longer enjoy it, he says, here's what I need you to do. I need you to remember. I need you to rethink and revalue. And I need you to repeat some things that you used to do. So here's what I want us to do for just a moment. Here's a question. Has there ever been a time where you've been closer? Has there ever been a time when you felt more peace and more joy, more excitement, more enthusiasm? I want you to remember once upon a better time in your faith. Once upon a better time in your relationship with Jesus when you, you just couldn't wait. 
You just couldn't wait to be with God's people. You just couldn't wait to be part of a local church. You just couldn't wait to get an opportunity to talk to somebody about what Jesus is doing in your life. You couldn't wait to spend just a little time in prayer. You couldn't wait just to open up the scriptures and just read just a few verses. You just couldn't wait to feel like you were involved in a part of something that was making a difference for the kingdom of God. I want you to think back. I want you to remember that time. Remember when you got up early and remember when you spent a little time before bed and you would open up your Bible and you would read a little bit. And maybe you had some books that were really helping you grow in your faith and you were involved in a group and you were serving and you were making a difference. I want you to remember that, Jesus says. I want you to remember what that felt like. I want you to remember what that season of life was like. I want you to think back about how exciting and fulfilled you were. Think about that time when you you still believed in miracles and you prayed big prayers. You didn't believe there was anything that God couldn't do. His arm was not shortened. His eyes were not dim. His ears were not closed. You believed that he could do far more exceeding abundant than what you could ever ask or think and you prayed like it. Remember. Remember what it was first like when you remembered that you were forgiven of all of your sins. You were given a home in heaven. You were given abundant life. Remember. And then he says, rethink. Start thinking about some things differently because what's happened is your values have gotten off. You didn't realize it. You didn't notice it. But some important things begin to overtake the most important thing. And some good things begin to overshadow the best thing. And you didn't even know it was happening. So I need you to rethink about the value structure of your life because every decision that you make is a response to your value structure. The what is always influenced by the why and the values of your life are the why. You decide to do what you do, the way you do it. Go where you go, spend your time, spend your money. All of that, it all flows out of values. So Jesus said, I need you to rethink and revalue. Put me at the top. Put me at the top. I love my wife. But when I love my spouse, if you love your spouse more than you love Jesus, If your spouse has become your functional savior, the source of all of your peace, the source of all of your anxiety, if your spouse has become effectively your God, Jesus said, I need you to revalue some things. Your kids, I know your kids are lovable. I love my kids. I can't imagine anybody loves their their kids like I love my two boys. But if I love my kids more than Jesus, Jesus says, "I I need you to rethink and I need you to revalue because that is not the value structure which is going to serve you or your family well. And then he says, I want you to go back and I want you to repeat the things that you used to do. So go back and think about that season and think about what you did during that season and just go back and start doing those things. Maybe for some of you, you got up a little bit early. You got a cup of coffee, you sat down at the table, you listened to some worship music, you opened up a Bible, you didn't even understand most of it, but you thought it was doing good and it was doing good. You showed up and you said, hey, how can you use me at church? And you got involved, but somewhere along the way you got too busy, you got too tired, you said, I'm taking a break, and you've been on intermission for a long time. Back then, you were given sacrificially, you were given and it required faith and it was uncomfortable, but I'm telling you, there was something exciting about it, but somewhere along the way, you shifted, you moved away, and those things, they're just not present anymore. You were going to work and you were trying to spark up a conversation on purpose, hoping that the door would open so that you could invite somebody to be a part of your church on the weekend. But that's not happening in a long time. 
You used to shed some tears over some family members and some friends that were far from God. But that's not happened in a long time. He says, I want you to rethink what you used to do. And I want you to just go back and repeat it. Start doing it over again. You see, it's not, it's not hard to say that Jesus is most important. Any of us can do that. It is hard to make Jesus most important and live life accordingly. I work in the ministry. I work in this church. I've given the last 14 years of my life, this is what I do. And I'm telling you, I'm, I'm in this every single day, but I'm telling you, this is a constant, constant, constant struggle, a constant fight. This is something that we have to stay conscious of, aware of all the time. If not, we drift towards good things and we leave behind the best thing. And if we listen, we can hear him saying, you don't love me like you used to. wrote in my journal this week I told God this morning God my heart is prone to wonder it is it's just, it is I, I, I'm prone to drift and to shift I'm like Israel we're like Israel I read about it two weeks ago I read about it at the end of this week and God just kind of just crushed my heart with it God spoke to the nation and he said what did you find wrong with me that caused you to walk away from me? What did you find wrong with me? But then he says, if you'll come back to me, my arms are open. So could you remember? Remember that he loves you, that he chose you, he's brought you into his family. Can you remember what it was like once upon a time? Can you rethink and revalue and can you go back and do some of the things that you need to do once again? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. All over this room, Somerset and Williamsburg, maybe you're here, you're a follower of Jesus. And you can just be honest. There's some things in your life that are more important right now. There's some things that excite you more. There's some things that bring more joy to you. There's some things that, there's just some things that are more important. They're good things. But maybe today you could rededicate your life to say, you know what? Jesus, I want you to be most important. And I want to begin to live my life in that reality. I want to begin to order my life around that value system that has you at the very top. I want it to inform my life, my marriage, my finances, every part of my life. I want to put you up there at the top. In just a moment, we're gonna sing a song together that says, Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. And th those are big words, but I'm gonna pray and I want you to pray that those words, if we sing them in just a moment, it'll be a prayer. It'll come from a place of truth. And if it's not coming from a place of truth, at least it will come from a place that desires for it to be true. So while we sit for a moment, and as the Holy Spirit deals with us and pulls back the curtain, that we get honest. And for those of us who need to rededicate our lives to Jesus, may today be the day. Father, speak to us in this moment as only you can. In Jesus' name.